Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, quick note before today's show that you are going to want to listen to this week's CanadaLand Commons because on this week's CanadaLand Commons, there are interviews with Jagmeet Singh, Charlie Angus, and Nikki Ashton. And they are different interviews with those people than you are going to hear anywhere else. So these are the three NDP leadership candidates who Commons have not already spoken to, all on one episode. Check it out. This week's Canada Land Commons comes out Tuesday, September 26th. The first voice that you heard on the first episode of Canada Land was not mine. It was the voice of my old boss, CBC radio host, Michael Enright. So what are we doing? Uh, it's a podcast. It's uh, kind of like your radio show, except uh, people listen to it on purpose. Okay, good. You put on weight. I struck a cocky pose, but the truth is I was more than a little desperate at the time, and I had no idea what I was getting into. Canada Land was a Hail Mary pass, quite possibly career suicide for me and nothing but trouble for anyone who touched it. But Enright did the show anyhow. He had walked up from the CBC in the pouring rain to an echoey little makeshift studio in my co-working space. He changed out of his soaked shirt into a hoodie that I had fished out of the lost and found, and we drank bourbon together and talked shit about the Canadian media. It was a huge favor for him to do for me, and it wasn't the first. Years earlier, 
after I'd been laid off by the CBC for the first time and banished from the building for a year, it was Michael Enright who had encouraged me to pitch a second series for a tech show called Search Engine. And it was Michael Enright who co-signed the proposal for that show and got me a second chance. The guy has saved my career in radio a couple of times, and I don't really know why. Maybe he feels responsible for it. I mean, he is responsible for it. The only reason that I make radio, okay, podcasts, is because Enright asked me to. He had read some humor columns that I'd written in Saturday Night Magazine, and he invited me to contribute to his show. And that is how I happened to discover that telling stories and talking to people on the air is my favorite thing in the world to do. And every time I fuck it up, he has played a role in saving my ass. That interview with him on Canada Land Number 1, that's what got this whole thing rolling. Michael Enright drinking liquor and swearing is as good a hook as any for a new podcast, so that helped me get a few thousand downloads right off the bat. But it was more than that. Michael, in that interview, he, he gave this project his blessing, and he gave me advice. He agreed that Canada needed media criticism, and he warned me it would take time. I would have to act like a real broadcaster. Do it like people were listening, even if they weren't. Do it like it mattered, even if it didn't. And most importantly, do it every week. So I did, even when it was next to impossible to get a guest on. Even when the sponsor dropped out, and I was doing it at a loss for months. And bit by bit, it started to work. Things happened. Slowly, listeners came my way. And then stories came my way. And then, funding the money that some of you pay to keep this whole thing going. That came too. But before Canada Land was a team effort, before we were a podcast network and a news service, it was just me and Michael talking in a tiny room. And today, some four years and change later, for this episode number 200 of Canada Land, we'll do it again. And again, he had no reason to do it. He actually had a strong reason to cancel on me because of what happened just a few days before our scheduled interview. Air Canada on Twitter, asked for Canada Land's help. They shined the bat signal because they wanted us to help them fight CBC bias. In a gotcha move that I don't think I've ever seen before from a big Canadian company, Air Canada dumped screen grabs of internal CBC emails onto the internet that proved, or so they seemed to believe, that the CBC was out to get them. The emails were about Air Canada's boarding procedure, the hopelessly slow Zone 1, Zone 2, Zone 3 method that they use. Air Canada had offered the CBC a lengthy defense of this procedure, and then a major CBC personality dismissed it all in an email as bullshit. It was an email directed to a colleague, but it was an email that had accidentally been sent to Air Canada. That CBC personality was, of course, Michael Enright. He will be with me in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Adam Sprout, Chris Joseph, Angeline Francis, Kathy Meum, William Lurie, Henry Adzenberg, Ian K. McLeod, and Louis Laramie. Louis, why did you decide to be awesome? because I truly believe that Canada needs more information and transparency from their journalists and politicians. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. 
And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away, but often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is also brought to you by a couple of new sponsors, actually. The first one is the Fish Eyes Trilogy. This is a live performance at Factory Theatre here in Toronto. 48th season of Factory Theatre launches with this show, the Fish Eyes Trilogy. This is a show written by and starring Anita Majumder. This is an audacious trio of one-woman dance plays adapted for a single three-act performance. The exhilarating coming-of-age plays, Fish Eyes, Boys with Cars, and Let Me Borrow That Top, are told through the eyes of three different teenage girls who attend the same school in small-town B.C. These three girls, alongside their family and friends, all portrayed by Majumder in a tour de force solo performance, discussing everything from cute boys to colonialism to consent, If you go to the theater regularly and you live in Toronto or are visiting, you're going to want to check out this show. And if you don't go to the theater, well, maybe it's time that you did. Anita Majumder is an award-winning actress, playwright, and choreographer. She was in the film Midnight's Children. She was in the CBC film Murder Unveiled. She is an incredibly interesting and exhilarating performer. Check out her work for 20 to 50 bucks. You'll get 20% off of a ticket if you go to factorytheater.ca slash CanadaLand and use the offer code CanadaLand. Like, a movie costs that or so. Why not go see some live theater? Factorytheater.ca slash CanadaLand. Offer code CanadaLand. This episode is also brought to you by Skillshare, an online learning community with over 17,000 classes in design, business, and more. You can learn everything from logo design to social media marketing to street photography, and you get unlimited access to all of the classes in their library, all 17,000 classes for one monthly fee, one low monthly fee. You never have to pay per class again. I had a look at this. I checked out some of their marketing and entrepreneurship classes because I'm running a small business, but I don't know anything about this stuff. And I found their videos to be really watchable and well-produced. You can go and find like lectures online from college courses and 
you get what you pay for. The free stuff is sort of unwatchable. This stuff is beautiful. It runs you through the course step-by-step. Step. It's really well-explained. It's like going to school again on your own terms, and you can choose to study whatever you want. It really is incredible how you can level up and build skills through Skillshare. Listeners of this show can get unlimited access absolutely free. Go to Skillshare.com slash CanadaLand and you get a free month. And that is the kind of incentive that I'm really happy to include on the show because it is just giving you something useful for free. Skillshare.com slash CanadaLand. Offer code CanadaLand. We have a lot of catching up to do. Do we? Yeah. Uh, but first, I like. I feel like I owe you... I owe you something. You've taught me so much, and I feel guilty that I didn't teach you something that might have helped you. So it's an apology you owe me. Is it's that... an apology and oh. a lesson. Here's how it goes. Okay. CC means carbon copy. BCC yeah. means, means blind carbon. Very good. Yes. Reply all means that you're sending the email reply to every fucking person on the thread. Ah. See, I didn't know that. Yeah. I thought it was like a, an expression like reply you all. That kind of thing. I didn't realize. <clears throat> That's very interesting. Thank you for that. It might have saved you some aggravation. Could have done. Where were you last Friday? Did you buckle? Did you buckle to Air Canada? Is, is it getting spiked? What do you mean by buckle? I don't understand that. Uh, I, I see this exchange and I think, okay, Michael's got an essay probably coming up. No, no, no. The item that we're talking about hasn't aired yet. It and was not been broadcast. I know, but was it scheduled to be broadcast this past No, I don't think it's been scheduled. I think maybe in two weeks or something. I'm going to bring our listeners <clears throat> up to speed. Usually an interviewer would ask what happened, but I'm just going to tell you what I think happened. You'll tell uh -huh. me if I got it wrong. So Vox runs a piece about um, airport boarding. It's an irritation of many Canadians. And in, in your Andy Rooney way, I, I imagine this is something that would be of interest to you. And it's true. They board us in the most inefficient way. Zone one, two, three, four, five. If you, if right. you, if you board the windows first... And then the middle seats and then the aisles, everything goes much faster. So you're going to write about this in a Canadian context. Why doesn't Air Canada do this? No. You're going to do an essay? No. You're going to do a piece? No. Well, there is one man, a professor at the University of Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. I didn't know Las Vegas had a university. Anyway, he is the world's leading expert on plane boarding. Okay. Uh, and I interviewed him. The most inefficient way of boarding is the zone. One, two, the three, Air Canada. four. Air Canada. And others use it, too. The most efficient way is the boarding system that he invented. Now, I've forgotten his name, but that invention... You did a whole has, interview. You really made a meal out of it. Oh, indeed. Yeah. Because uh, it's a feature called Think Again. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do is tell people that what they think they know, they don't. In the course of that, I asked the producer simply to call Air Canada and find out why they use this particular inefficient way of boarding. And that's where it all happened. And that's where we see this email thread that Air Canada blasted and tagged us. If you follow Twitter, they I actually they, they yes, tagged Canada Land. Canada Land, come help us. Apparently. CBC is biased. And and what the what the email thread revealed was an exchange where your producer is going to Air Canada saying, we're, we're, we're airing this thing. We want to give you a chance to respond. What do you say about this? We're airing a piece based on this Vox article that says you guys use the least efficient boarding method. They respond and say, well, we're not going to respond to the Vox piece because the methodology used, we don't even know what it was. And right. the, and the airline, right. it's a different kind of airline. And they proceed to give what I would call a, a long-winded bit of baffle gab about 
uh, well, we, we, we have our elite program to consider. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have to use numbers because we're in places where people have different languages. They defend their zoning process, which is like the bane of any traveler's existence. Bafflegab is your word, by the way. I, that you word did, was, wouldn't, no. Never crossed my lips. Yours was bullshit. Ah. Right. So y you respond to your producer, let's just skip all this bullshit and go with they had nothing to say. What did you say? They, they had nothing to say about why they use the least efficient. Why? Method. Yeah. Why don't they? Why do they use the zone boarding? Right. <coughs> and me. Air Canada, uh, because you hit reply all, mm -hmm. gets your yes. instruction to your producer. Indeed. And they think they got you now. And they tweet the entire exchange and they put up the bat signal for Canada Land to come to their help. I read this and my bias and, uh, you know, fondness for you notwithstanding, a journalist doing his job. The idea of getting the other side of the story doesn't mean that we give equal space to whatever PR spin a flack wants to shove our way. Mm -hmm. You ask them a question. Why do you use the least efficient method possible? They respond with a bunch of bullshit that didn't speak to that at all. You say, okay, let's skip the bullshit and just say that it didn't really have a response. But... It is a bad look. Well, it's not only bad, it's, it's ill-mannered, and, uh, and I apologized immediately. Mm -hmm. uh, I said there were no excuses or uh, extenuations. It was inappropriate, the language, and uh, I take full responsibility for it. Okay. Then I, I listened to the Sunday edition to hear, yeah. well... What are they going to do now that they've uh, embarrassed themselves? Are they going to have a piece that gives gives equal time to Air Canada's baffle It gap? didn't run. It hasn't run yet. Which made me wonder, wow, did they spike it? No, did, no, 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 no. So it's going to run. Oh, it's on the skid. But yeah. I just don't, I can't remember when. I think it. I think it's in two weeks. I'm not sure. And will you skip their bullshit as you instructed your producer? Or does this now mean that you're going to give equal time to their bullshit? I don't know. understand the question. Their full response, which did not really answer your question. Oh, I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. I know that the, the interview with the uh, esteemed professor from the University of Las Vegas will run as recorded. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens after that, I have no idea. I have some idea. Do you? Yeah. Share, please. I can only predict the following. Yeah. You can forget about free upgrades next time you fly. <laughs> I've never had a free upgrade, ever. Michael, how are you? Well, aside from certain uh, internal ructions at the CBC, I'm fine. I'm fine. We've got our th third hour back. It was taken away from us two years ago. It was taken away from you when the board of directors, yeah. Harper appointees, said the CBC is not conservative enough. We need a conservative show. So they got Jim no, Brown. No, no, no. That's not the stated. That may be it's the implicit the reason. Okay. The reason I was told was that the board of directors wanted a program that better reflected Western feelings and mm -hmm. Western sentiments and Western sensations, meaning, I think, Alberta, which is their right to do. The board usually doesn't get involved with programming, but they can say what they want. And the idea was to take our very large audience as a lead-in to an hour program uh, reflecting Western values. Well, that's a distinction perhaps without a difference, but how did that go? Uh, they ran that, that show, and then we have a new I, prime minister, and now that show's gone. Well, I don't, uh, I don't know what went on internally. I was just told, asked in February or March uh, if I'd like the third hour back. That's like asking if I'd like eternal life. Of course I want the third hour back, and thanks very much. You're hard to kill. Um, what I want to do with you this morning is talk about then and now, because you were on episode one of Canada Land. Can you believe that? That was four years ago. An act of selfless generosity, actually. Mm. 
And this is your 200th program. Yes. I didn't think you'd make 20, but congratulations. What are you at now? 15,000? What is... Actually, our, we're coming up to 1,000th program of the, of the uh, Sunny Edition. And just pure serendipity, it's on the last day of the year. Okay. December 31st. What do you got planned? Well, we'll have Barack Obama on, co-hosting. Um, a couple of other things I can't talk about at the moment. That would be a joke if I said it, but you actually might. <laughs> no. We've got, we're planning some things. Okay. <laughs> and, but they're, they're top secret, of course, as you know. One of the things you advised me about on the first episode is just to be patient and to do this. You said it, it accretes. It's lapidary, which I had to look up. But that this is this enterprise of setting forth to do a show with a different perspective. You just got to do it every week. Yes. And it, it, was, uh, it was almost like trying to like commit to an exercise regimen. Like no one's really paying attention. Nobody gives a damn. That's right. But I'm going to treat this as if it's real. It's going to come out the same time every week. I'm going to have a show every week. I'll do my best some weeks. If I can't get anyone, I'll get someone. And we'll just do this. It's amazing. Yeah, no, it was incredible. Just from a startup, which uh, was kind of ignominious in the beginning, I think it's year to be congratulated. And I think... Without flattering too much, I think it's an important element in journalism in this country to have ginger groups or gadflies or, or critics to look at what we do. I'm emotionally very needy for your approval. Okay. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll fish for more of it soon. I guess I want to look at, like, what what has changed, and not necessarily because of us, but then and now, four years ago and now in the Canadian media. What has changed? What's changed, if anything? What's changed? Well, it's gotten weaker. Uh, uh, more newspapers have closed, especially yeah. community newspapers, which is very sad for me personally because I started out on a community newspaper back in the uh, mid-1920s. And to see those papers go is sad. Also, there's been so much um, withdrawal from the traditional, I don't want to say platforms, but the traditional uh, modes of journalism Everything is now digital, which mm-hmm. it wasn't four years ago. Everything is now clickbait and how many likes and... Everything is now clickbait and how many likes. Pretty much, uh-huh. I think. People still yearn for content that is appropriate and quality and funny and smart and interesting. But I think a lot of uh, social media um, are, are simply re- reflexive emotions, people respond to things more than they did four years ago and have greater access to a, to an audience than they did four years ago. Budgets have been cut. Foreign correspondents have been cut from newspapers and um, broadcasts, CBC, for example. Um, they're bringing some good things. I've noticed in the last two or three years a greater emphasis on investigative journalism mm-hmm. that I hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. The Globe Mail, uh, Washington Post, New York Times, CBC, the Toronto Star are really getting into investigative journalism. It's something we bemoaned when we spoke four years ago, the, That's lack, right. the lack of it. And now it seems to be flourishing. It mm-hmm. seems to be coming back. I can't explain that. I can. Go ahead. The proliferation of clickbait sites, of news aggregation, of uh, right. the, the vapidity of uh, the emotional response, the quick read – which led us directly to the Trump presidency, resulted in a wake-up call where people said, Jesus Christ, if we want to have a civil society, if we want to have information that is uh, accredited and uh, credible, if we want to have news that we can trust, we're going to have to actually value it. 
And the New York Times saw a huge, uh, I think, tri tripling of their subscription base. And I think that, that the original purpose of serious journalism was handed back to us saying, you can't, the problem was not the BuzzFeeds and the Huffington Post. It was that the CBCs followed them down that path and that all of the mainstream players who had nothing to offer except that they could do serious journalism better than anybody else were aping the hustlers, the click hustlers. I'm not sure. I think you may be ascribing a, a level of altruism that doesn't really exist. I remember the height of the Trump campaign before the nomination convention in Cleveland, uh, which was a very startling <laughs> event to be at. Leslie Moonves, the head of CBS, said uh, about Trump and all of that, the coverage, mm -hmm. it may not be good for America, but it certainly is good for CBS. Yes. That indicates to me that uh, two things. One, the line between entertainment and uh, journalism has been erased, effaced. When it comes to CBS television news journalism, uh, but journalism is moving around from the television. The other night you had Stephen Colbert, whom mm -hmm. I've always admired, had uh, the retired uh, liar, uh, Sean Spicer, yeah. on the Emmys. Well, to me, that's extraordinary. Uh, why would why would anybody with a living brain cell uh, invite that guy on uh, onto a television? Well, program? I agree with you. Well, because it's a television program and television lives and dies by ratings. And, and it basically no. puts the lie to the idea that the Stephen Colbert's, who I loved as well, Which, were Sean really... Spicer can spike the ratings? I mean, come on. You know, I, I, I think that that also was a wake-up call to those of us who revered these comedians of news to say, these guys are great. But if they're your moral leaders, uh, you, you need to rethink here. Uh, this is show business, and we need to have news journalism. I don't dispute with you that, that it's existing concurrently with news as entertainment, news as mass media. But it seems like, especially when it comes to the, the, the newspapers that are actually giving a fight and actually have a, a path forward. And, and now we're seeing even the Globe and Mails of the world follow suit saying, look, if we're going to have a chance in hell, it's got to be through things like investigation. It has to be through things like quality content. The Globe, though, is uh, retreating from some of its uh, historic venues. I mean, they're no longer, can you buy a Globe and Mail, the paper form in Nova Scotia or Newfoundland? Mm -hmm. uh, it's just not worth their while. So you get it on a pad or whatever, on your phone. You don't get it there. They don't. They're not reading it there. I. I don't. I just think it's it's sad. The you national newspaper that doesn't uh, circulate nationally. It hasn't been national for a long time, really. True. You called it a lousy newspaper four years ago. Well, I don't know if lousy was the. I just. It, I it worked, was the word, and that it was the word that you spoke with your mouth. I worked. I worked at the at the Globe back in the sixties. Yeah. In terms of coverage, writing layout, everything about it. It was a superb newspaper. We were foreign correspondent. We broke uh, the China barrier, the first newspaper to have a correspondent in China. I was in the Washington Bureau for the Globe. It was a terrific newspaper. It was a writer's newspaper. I think it's fallen in the last few years. I think the editing, if there is any, is not what it should be. But I still, it's still indispensable. I still read it every morning Yeah, in a paper way. I think that the whole writer's newspaper thing that they that they define themselves by for a long time, when they got rid of Tabitha and Leah at the same time, uh, and there's different opinions about those two columnists, uh, but I think that they're no longer looking to be thought of as such. I think I think that investigations and, and news are, are and a subscription-based well, model seems to be what they're. Um, you were a freelancer. Yeah, I, I was a freelancer. Freelancers are like baseball managers; they're hired to be fired. And, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I think the way it was done, perhaps, 
left a little uh, sour taste in various places. But we liked your stuff. We don't like it anymore. Goodbye. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. Let's talk about the CBC then and now. Okay. When we first spoke, or when we spoke on episode one of Canada Land, Peter Mansbridge was your main news personality. Gian Gameshi, Gameshi was your main arts personality. Evan Solomon was your main politics personality. Amanda Lang was your main business personality. <laughs> and Rex Murphy was, I guess, the main angry uncle personality. Right. That's all changed. What a roll call of glorious talent that is. Extraordinary. <laughs> what was the question embedded in that recitation? Oh, some of those people went because of uh, they needed to go because of uh, scandals and, and uh, you know, Amanda Lang and, and Jean Gameshi, of course, because uh, of stories that I covered or that we covered. Peter Mansbridge just retired. Um, sure. There's churn. Uh, yeah. But what is interesting to me is that I can't name the main CBC News personality that replaced Peter Mansbridge or the main arts personality. I mean, I know who's hosting that show, but it seems that the Sturzbergian emphasis on building personalities is done. I don't sense, I don't see the, the, the faces on billboards, and I don't feel like the CBC is investing in celebrity the way that it did before. Uh, well, now, you have to differentiate between celebrity and the people who are doing the work. I mean, not everybody who's on air or on television, CBC, is a celebrity. Oh, I, 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 I know that, and I know that you know that. Do you ever see uh, car cards or billboards about Matt Galloway, for example, around the city? Yeah, I do. He was voted something or other most influential people in Toronto life. Uh, and that's because he's very good at what he does. Has the star system disappeared? I don't think there ever was. The host culture that people talk about, culture. you know, and the toxicity that followed of, of building up people who were kind of bigger than the institution and then they had to work with staffs where there was an imbalance of power. It seems that's like that's always was, been the case. Yeah. Since 1936, that's always been the case with CBC. You hear stories about Zosky and. You know. Yeah. How do you. Yeah. What. What. Uh, how do you put you give people a platform, as I've been given, to talk and be on the radio, uh, and that generates a certain amount of interest, or uh, and it builds up over the years. And then what do you do with the person? I mean, if, if we, I'm not bigger than the CBC, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think I don't consider I work for the CBC. This happens organically, as you say, but it also at a certain point became deliberate, and they put an executive in charge. Of, of grooming people to be CBC celebrities, they put enormous budgets in charge. Who was uh, the executive? I don't remember charge. her name. There was she was a, the the VP of of personalities or something like that. <laughs> Is that television? Because I never knew it in radio. She never called you, Michael. Oh, no, never. Uh-huh. And my door is always open. Um, <laughs> no, I. Radio, as you know, is is separate from yeah the the maw of CBC television. I don't know what goes on upstairs on, sure. the, on the fourth floor. They would tell you in management that TV doesn't exist anymore. We don't think that way. It's all all digital and everything is everything. Yeah. And we make we make content. We put it on the internet. Some of it lands up on TV. Some of it lands on radio. That's what's changed at the CBC. We're digital first now. Yes, whatever that means. We we have podcasts, the the Sun Edition, and but we also have a very large mm-hmm. audience that listens on the radio, in the car or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we have podcasts. You have a podcast. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. I, I, I've uh, been alerted to the existence. Uh, Tangerine, by the way, wonderful purveyors of insurance. Do you know what I'm talking about? Nope. I don't uh, uh, eat tangerines. No? No. Y- y- you advertise them. The Sunday edition has advertisements on it. It does? It does. What do you mean it does? If I download your podcast. Oh, I get, on the podcast. I get sold insurance. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, I hope you take advantage of that. 
I want to talk to you about this because okay. I, I know that you are a certain school of broadcaster. You, do, you take pride in the fact, I think you said to me, I've never read an ad. Is this, is this so? You mean on the air? Yeah. Uh, not That's not entirely true. Okay. Uh, years ago when I was hosting Daybreak in Montreal, this was in the era before the commercial ban, <laughs> there was one uh, advertiser for our show around 6 to 9 in the morning. It was called Direct Film, in which you could send your film in, mm-hmm. uh, and usually they had kiosks at parking lots, and you could get the developed prints an hour later. Sounds great. I'm oh, it so was incredible. Yeah. And um, I wasn't allowed to read commercials. I had to have a partner who was a member of the union that was allowed to read the commercial. <laughs> but one morning he didn't show up for work. Right. And I had to read the commercial about direct film yeah. and play the cart led to one embarrassing moment. We had a young man on our on Daybreak who came in every Friday and deconstructed famous speeches, Socrates' suicide speech, the Gettysburg Address, and so on. And the young man's name was Conrad Black. Oh, dear God. And uh, he was terrific. Yeah. Uh, he came in and sat down, and I had the commercial, the uh, direct film thing, and I said... Uh, Here's a word from uh, Direct Film, and we'll be right back with our guest, Conrad Hall. He wouldn't have liked that. He said, what was that? And I said, I don't know. It must be Friday. I'm exhausted. We came off the commercial, and I said, I'm sorry, friends. Uh, I must be still asleep because I misnamed our guest, who, of course, is Conrad Hall. (laughs) And I said it twice, and... Maybe that's why I had such a short career in Montreal. I don't know. I never thought of that. That Con- is, Conrad and I are still talking, though. So he and I are talking too on Twitter from time to time. Really, he won't come on the show, but uh, we have the occasional well, you can, exchange. You can get him on the show. That was an interesting aside. What I was talking about <laughs> was the fact that um, I take it that you take some pride in the fact that CBC Radio One does not include commercials. Of course, you, you would rather have a CBC without commercials. Of course. I want to bring your attention to this because, you know, you talked about FM radio's big audience. It still has a big audience. It's amazing. It's 100 years in and, and it was supposed to be killed. FM radio? Well, I'm sorry, radio. Radio, yeah. Terrestrial radio. Uh, it was supposed to be destroyed by the 8-track, by the iPod. Nothing can kill it. Yeah. We're going to kill it. Uh, podcasts and the internet are going to kill it. Okay. But we're not going to kill it. We're just going to merge with it. And it's it's happening. Every year, our 3% becomes 4% and your 100% becomes, you know, it's but it's, it's still radio. Uh-huh. And people's phones and their cars, it, it, it's coming, Okay. Okay. CBC has only one platform without ads, yours. Okay. Every new platform, as they've gotten into this multi-platform universe, television and then and then online, uh, written stuff online, and then the streaming video online, and then podcasts all have advertisements. Okay. When podcasts and streaming fully takes over terrestrial radio, there will be no CBC left that doesn't have ads. Okay. I'll have if, to take your word for it that. It feels like they, well... Uh, I don't have the expertise to comment on that. It seems like there's... there's <clears throat> What what defines CBC and I think should define public broadcasting is an ad-free space that we pay for. You guys are becoming a ghetto that is getting smaller each year. So you care about where the CBC is You mean going. radio is getting smaller each Terrestrial year? Terrestrial radio. Okay. As a medium is shrinking. The listenership is shrinking. I keep reading stories about that, uh, about the death of radio and how it's shrinking and all that. And then I read other stories saying that more people are listening to radio than ever before in history. In fact, the latest figures I got, there was a Pew survey 
three or four years ago, something like 230 million Americans were listening to radio at least once a week, Mm -hmm. either in their cars or on radio. That's an awful lot of people in a population of 350 million. So I, I think there's a lot of, yes, you're right, the death of radio has always been predicted from the beginning, from the very beginning, the way television was going to kill the movies, the way movies was going to kill theater, the way the VHS was going to kill movie, you know, all of that stuff. None of that has come to pass. And I think, I don't want to quote Mark Twain, but to predict the demise of radio as we have come to know it is a bit premature well, and a bit arguable. This is uh, the, the challenge of our day. You've got some article you said, I've got mine, and we can call each other fake news. It's, uh, I feel like it's almost immaterial because what is replacing it, this is a renaissance of radio right now. What is? The podcast oh, yeah. explosion. Okay. Yeah. People are turning to this and wow, this is amazing. And I can find things that are so in tune to, to my sensibilities. Yeah. And we're seeing a real pro- proliferation of serious journalism, amongst other things. I it's, don't think my children listen to radio, qua radio. I think they listen to podcasts. And yeah. Digitally so, and all that. That's where it's moving. And um, I, look, I don't want to uh, put you in another tight spot with management. I'm just curious. And I should, I should tell you, I've been kind of out there leading a battle cry that CBC Online should be ad-free, both because I believe in an ad-free public broadcaster and because I'm an entrepreneur in this space, and I don't think I should be paying CBC to compete with me right? and limit other companies from getting in this space. So I have a conflict of interest there that I should disclose and do when I talk about this. But it surprises me that the journalists of your generation of the CBC who most value the ad-free status of Radio 1 are missing from this debate. And it has become a public debate that management is, is a part of now, too. They put forth their proposal for an ad-free CBC. Um, I disagree. Um, the head of radio is a woman named Susan Margetti. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> She's an amazing person. I didn't know her at all until she took over the job. And then I had lunch with her, had a drink or something. She worked down the hall from you for I like know, decades. But I didn't know I didn't know her. It's a weird building. <clears throat> because I ran when I ran the news service the head of radio was the vice president. Radio had its own vice president. Yeah. We've talked a lot about all of this. She's very much a proponent of digital broadcasting. She knows a hell of a lot about it, certainly more than any of us. But she's also extremely protective of what I will call traditional radio. The as it happens is the current ideas, that kind of thing. She is very... The only the word I could think, think of is, is protective. She is a stalwart, if you will, in terms of public broadcasting, yes. A, and B, the way CBC Radio, uh, certainly on uh, AM and FM, uh, have been dealing with things. As she should She's, be, but th- those shows succeed yeah. online too, you know. Those, sh- those shows have sure, of course they do. popular podcasts. Yeah, but all, don't forget. With ads on them. All right, but don't forget that there are a lot of people who've listened to the CBC that might – I don't know about your children, they're very young, but my children didn't come to CBC in their teens. They listened to FM 105, rock music and and Chum and all that kind of stuff. Chum, does it still exist? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh God. This is terrible. I know. Let me show you. What do they listen to, the kids, Michael? Um, now they all listen on digital and whatnot. But okay. they came to CBC Radio in their 30s, late 20s, 30s. Yes. It's not something that you're inoculated with at birth. You've got to 
work into CBC. Yeah, I, I, some people say they grew up in these CBC households where it was on all the time. Oh, yeah, sure. I wasn't one of them. I didn't know who you were. Yeah, I know. You'd never heard of me or CBC Yeah, when we met. But I dug it, you know. It seemed like there was a, so, a, well, the thing, a special kind of status that it had. It's not. Know? The CBC doesn't exist to give people work. Okay. Um, Wait, what? To give people a job. Right. That's not the reason we exist. I don't work for the CBC. I work for the people who own it. Right. Which includes you. Yes. A, a conflicted entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. That's the core message of CBC Radio, that that's what we're in the business of. And I think that that's still being protected. Now, it will turn up in other areas and other platforms and other whatever. Iterations, I guess, is the word you would use. And that's fine. It doesn't bother me. But every week we have over a million people listening to the radio program. It's been an exhaustive exercise in not answering the thing, a question I actually asked. No, I have answered it not only fully, but candidly. Let's talk about uh, something we talked about four years ago, which is the culture of the Canadian media and something that Canada Land was an effort to counter. the insularity, the uh, protection, uh, the omerta, the silence that people had about calling each other out, the incestuousness. There I feel I will claim some credit for I think having an impact because if it was too quiet then it's an ugly knife fight now. It feels like nobody can say anything without having uh, instant criticism and I'll be right there partaking in it. I feel like that's just true that there's less reverence for – the powers that be. I feel like this new generation of freelancers are much less guarded and careful about who they call out. And I feel like this has had um, impacts. We talk about the whole thing with uh, Andrew Potter and Ken White. Like It feels like things have changed in ways that I would, I would probably say are pretty good. I'm curious what you think. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, I have very little memory of what we talked about four years ago. I tried to erase... Uh, any conscious memory of, of that. We also drank a fair amount of bourbon. Uh, I think you we no did. Longer I, think, I think you did, yes. This is what I call a King Hussein question. Uh, years ago, I interviewed King Hussein, then King of Jordan, and I asked him a long, tortured question, and at the end, he said, well, started to answer, and then he said, Mr. and I'm sorry, I've forgotten the question, and I said, Your Majesty, so have I. I don't know what question you're asking me <laughs> after that uh, that benign intro. What are you talking about? Four years ago, we were talking about Margaret Wente, and we were talking about how she was able to, in some special status whereby the plagiarism, um, I wouldn't even call them charges. Her plagiarism didn't seem to affect her job, I and mean, that's still true. She's still in that job and still plagiarizing. It seems. Anyhow, uh, I feel like I'm going long again. There seemed to be some consensus between us that there was not enough media criticism in Canada. There was not enough... You mean uh, criticism of the media? Yes. Okay. And that there was uh, too much of a Toronto centricity, too much of everybody being married to everybody else, knowing everybody else, and not a uh, no, no sunlight as disinfectant. Oh, that, I see. Right. And uh, I think that's true. Yeah. I think it's probably true. And I think there is more. Uh, but there's media criticism, and then there is media gang rape. The, oh my. the criticism I accept when people point out the failings, weaknesses, omissions that we in the media commit every day probably. Mm-hmm. What I don't like is when it's personalized and it becomes an attack on not what people do but who they are. Can you say an example? Um, I think the attacks on Margaret Wenty are personal. 
I think the attacks on Rex Murphy or whatever have become personal. Uh, and I know in the last week, the mail, some of the mail I've gotten is, is personal, but that's because CBC people, listeners, have a proprietary interest in CBC generally, and they think they can attack me, and that's fine. I don't mind that. But I think sometimes you, for example, have gone a little overboard. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Because there is this I voice. think the, the, the pre-obit of Lord Black yeah. of Cross Harbor, uh-huh. and I won't go into the aesthetic merits of it because I think it was devoid of any aesthetic merit, but I think that kind of attack it was just it wasn't critic it wasn't media criticism. It was hardly criticism of him. And it was simply a kind of journalistic mugging. And I think there's been a lot of that. I think Andrew Sullivan, for example, New York magazine, has been he's been attacked in many ways. He wrote a very famous essay called I Used to Be Human, in which he decided that all social media was, was were toxic mm-hmm. emanations. And he was attacked for that. I, I, this this idea of attack journalism or attack criticism, I just find a little bit discomforting. Uh, and I think the black piece, I mean, Conrad Black, whom I've known for years, is fully capable of defending himself. But I thought that was unnecessary, uncalled for, and ill-considered. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that you do that we should have more of is letting people know how media work. This is, you know, after 56 years in the business, the reason I think that the public is disaffected about media that doesn't doesn't trust what media do, newspapers or television, whatever, the whole fake news nonsense, is they don't know how things work. There is a sensation that it's all a conspiracy, that the Globe gets together with the star and they, we sit down with CBC and we decide we're going to go after so-and-so or we're going to do this or whatever. They don't understand what a newspaper is, what a broadcast authority is, what a program is meant to do. Mm -hmm. And I think you've thrown some light on that, and that's good. All right. I'll accept it. Listen, every day I have a team here where we kind of storm into these battles, and we've inured ourselves to these frequent criticisms of, uh, well, that was too mean. Or, you know, what you said is true, but the tone was off. And I don't give much credence to, it doesn't bother me much if I feel like what we're doing is right. right. But I do carry with me a, a, some sort of sense of like, well, I, what would Michael say about this? Because I, 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 you know, I feel like you'll go forth bravely when you need to, but what, what is overstepping? I mean, the Connor Black thing was, was a... I was proud to publish that, uh-huh. and I and I I, I, I ha- I've imagined this conversation where I, I know that it's something that you'd find just distasteful t- to the extreme. And I, from the author's point of view, Robert Jago, I'm curious as an exercise what you think about this argument. Robert Jago, an indigenous writer who I think is uh, wonderful, he notes and he reads this every time that Conrad Black, who for some reason is the one convicted felon who has a column in a, a newspaper, a national newspaper in Canada, every time it seems he deals with any Indigenous question at all, he will take the opportunity to remind the reader that when we found the Indigenous people, they were prehistoric and they mm-hmm. scalped yep. women and children. And we were so much more advanced than them. And they have no legitimate claim to the land because they didn't even think about owning land. And and Jago says, well, first of all, this is inaccurate. That's true. And it's irrelevant. And 
the well, I think it's more important that it's wrong than it is irrelevant. Well, I think I actually feel like the relevance is so what? In the context of discussing, say, reconciliation or the context of discussing the residential schools in the context of discussing the terrible situation where there's more boiled water advisories in the yeah, Trudeau era yeah. than before, what fucking point do you have, Lord Black, in bringing up your conception of this sorry, miserable state that the indigenous people were, were in, if not to suggest that we owe them nothing, that they are nothing, and that they're better off however bad they are now. Well, and, right. and, and so using words, Jago says, yes, this is mean. This is nasty. I'm going to write a heartless obit for a man who I think should be forgotten by history, but it's just words. And we, we, we tried to counter your arguments politely. And you didn't respond. So here's this. And I feel like this is something that we can do. This is something that journalism can do. And then we can run an opinion piece like this. Okay, but the problem I had with the the piece, twofold, one is he didn't correct the errors that Black made. He didn't talk about the the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Mm -hmm. He didn't talk about how indigenous people saved this country from Americans in the War of 1812. He didn't talk about the fact that they were not nomads, that they had communities, they had structures. He didn't rebut the arguments, silly arguments that Black was putting forward. Jago's a big guy and he can defend himself. But I think what he might say and what I've heard people say is like, why is that his job? Just because we've given Conrad Black this forum and we all listen to Conrad Black for some reason, that he as an indigenous guy has to give the same. I remember Jesse Wente in tears on Metro Morning saying, why isn't my fucking job every time these offensive intrusions, these assertions of this racist ideology, and I have to remind you of what this country did to indigenous people. It's my job to remind you every single time. Well, that's what... That's a labor, you know? Yeah, of course it is. And that's what people like uh, Tainahisi Coates and James Baldwin and Nell Irvin Painter and all of these black thinkers in yeah. the United States, intellectuals in the United States, have to do. Samuel Johnson said it's not not only the duty of the journalist to inform, it's the duty of the journalist to remind. Yeah. And I think that they're reminding us of all of these things. I have, on my little high horse for the last five or six years, complained bitterly about you can't get clean drinking water on, I think now, it's 73 reserves across the country. And the problem is not... Uh, the problem is money. Uh, the problem is not money. Excuse me. If you throw money at it, you can build the pipe. The problem is that there are three jurisdictions involved, mm-hmm. the feds, the province, and the municipalities. But for Christ's sake, if we can't get clean drinking water to a very important segment of the population, then I think that people have to argue why that should be the case, why we should be able to get them clean water and uh, proper sewage. I think they have to argue it over and over again until it gets done. Otherwise, it's not going to get done. So the, the, the analogy then is that it is the responsibility, you would say, of indigenous thinkers. Not the re- no, no, not the sole responsibility. But they should be reminding of this. Uh, well, I think we should be. I think we should be teaching in the schools. I never learned... I never learned anything about Native people, Indian people, Indigenous people, whatever whatever you say. I mean, you can't really blame the schools. You did drop out. Not until grade 12. I spent many happy years in grade 12. But I never learned anything at all about them. Yeah. I didn't know anything about Joseph Brandt. I didn't know anything about Tecumseh. I didn't know anything about any of these people uh, because it simply wasn't taught. Yeah. The map, the world map was pink and it was British. So the Robert Jaggers of the world have to pick up the slack of our failed system. That, no. I mean, these should be uh, basics for Canadians, right? Like, of Canadian, course. We should learn this stuff. But it's not going to get, it's starting now to get in the curriculum. Yeah. Because people have bitched and complained about it. 
And if you stop bitching and complaining about it, it's fine. But Conrad Black made a certain number of assertions in his various columns. And it would have been far more effective if the writer had gone through and said, okay, he said this, this is the reality. Yeah. He said this, this is the reality. And refuted the stuff that Black was writing. Well, I you think know, that would have been far more effective. Here, here you are running afoul and you're going to, I know you don't read Twitter, but you're going to, there's going to be a lot of blowback saying that, that, that this is offside of what we should be asking people to do. And it puts the responsibility on the wrong shoulders. And uh, you, why you know, do you keep you, talking about responsibility? You'll catch some hell for this, but, but I, I I think that you're kind of voicing an essential role of what the journalist is there for, which is if there's a lie, you got to correct it. I if, think so. If, if it's false, what's the truth? Yeah. I think that's I think that's uh, part of the mission. Yeah. And I think what's changed in the last four years, I'll tell you what's changed, is the coverage of indigenous people in this country, mm-hmm. beginning with the, oh, the Ottawa uh, demonstration. You remember? Uh, Idle no more. That got tremendous coverage, properly so, in my view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that stirred something in the consciousness of Canadians. And the press didn't miss an opportunity to pile on uh, Theresa Spence and make it a personal thing. But uh, Well, I think at some point, yeah, because uh, I think she was thrust into a situation that she was ill-prepared for. Mm-hmm. And uh, how do you expect I mean, people who have been ignored for hundreds of years yeah. suddenly are prominently displayed and, and we criticize them for being... Uh, Awkward or inarticulate. I think the coverage of indigenous affairs, treaties, the fact that people who at TIFF, thanks to Jesse Wente, get up before a performance and say we're sitting on the land of Mm -hmm. the Haudenosaunee or the Mississauga. I mean, that would never happen four years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, What it'll amount to is the next question, but this is where it starts. I don't know. I know every time I write about crappy water on the reserves, I get a hell of a lot of mail saying, why does why don't people do something about this? Yeah. And you keep hammering away and hammering away. That's our responsibility. That's not the responsibility of the indigenous people, but that's the responsibility of journalists. I do care what you think about what we do here, and I often wonder about it. But uh, <laughs> we set a course here, and we're going to see where it takes us. I think it's valuable. I do. I think it's valuable. I think you, you piss off an awful lot of people. Yeah. And I think that's probably a good thing. But sometimes, as we all do, we we all slip. Um, sure, not I've not made, with that one, but sometimes I've made terrible mistakes too, on air and in journalism. When I was at McLean's Magazine, I once wrote a very long piece about the imminent danger of swine flu, nineteen seventy six. How it was going to destroy half the population of the world, and uh, I went down to the states. I talked to people and so on, and this was really a deadly thing that was going to happen. Two people died. Uh, Both of them died. I'm so sorry for you. Both of them died from taking the shot that would have prevented swine flu. Uh Gerald Ford was president. He took a shot. He didn't die. But it was ridiculous. I I had gone apocalyptic at McLean's, and uh, I've, I've felt badly about it ever since. Yeah. All you could do is account for it and, uh, you know. And explain it. Yeah. Or something. As much as I want your uh, approval about the work we do, your answer to this next question matters more to me. When you were here four years ago. You going to go back to the bourbon again? No. Okay. Um, your time as a CBC executive, you shared with me when you were talking about how it's, it's a good thing to do media criticism and, and that you made it about you and said, well, in fact, I actually brought a media criticism show to the CBC. But it uh, only uh, radio media file, media file, yeah. But it only lasted a year. Did it? Yeah. Okay. So that's what you told me. 
I think so. We've been here for four years. Right. So we succeeded where you failed. I don't connect. We've been doing media criticism for four years. Oh, yeah, exactly. And why did Mediafile fail? Well, it's obvious. I mean, I don't have the team. I didn't have the team, the expertise, the underlying intelligence that you clearly have. That's all I wanted to hear, Michael. Okay, that is Canada Land number 200. I hope you enjoyed it. Email me. I read everything you send me and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Like us on Facebook so you get all of our stuff in your newsfeed or check out our website, canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. On October 15th here in Toronto, we will be the closing show of the Hot Docs Podcast Festival. I will be speaking with Daniel Dale. He is a fascinating reporter who is taking on Donald Trump. Yes, I would say he's taking on Donald Trump because it's his job to fact check Donald Trump. They are in an adversarial relationship. He will be talking with me on stage about his relationship with Donald Trump. It's going to be a great chat. Just Google Hot Docs Podcast Festival and you'll find ticket information. The producer of this show this week is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will let me serve in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.